There is absolutely zero chance that all of us are right about everything that we believe in. So the question is, what are we wrong about? And we need other people to help us see that. But changing our minds requires feeling safe enough and confident enough to do that and humble enough. So we want to be able to be wrong and to change our minds, but we need to allow others the space to do so. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I want to return to the theme of critical thinking. How can we teach people to immunize their minds against disinformation? In the past, I've interviewed two of the co-founders of the Mental Immunity Project, Andy Norman and Lee McIntyre to get their feedback on how to fight the pandemic of misinformation and disinformation that we're all being fed on social media. The Mental Immunity Project is an effort to vaccinate the minds of the public against viral misinformation. Like what I did there? Anyways, today I'm interviewing the third co-founder of the project to learn about her work in fighting for a rational view. If you like what you're hearing, I urge you to press like on your podcast app and feel free to chat with me on my Facebook group, The Rational View. Send me a review. That would be wonderful. Love to hear from you. Melanie Tresick King is the creator of Thinking is Power, an online critical thinking resource. She is an associate professor of biology at Massasoit Community College, where she teaches a general education science course designed to teach critical thinking information literacy, and science literacy. As a speaker and consultant, she promotes her teach skills, not facts approach to fellow science educators and assists organizations in achieving their goals through better thinking. Melanie, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to meet you. I appreciate you coming to join us and teach us a little bit about your work. Now, uh, I've been involved with uh, Andy Norman and Lee McIntyre on their work on the Mental Immunity Project. And, you know, it's very well aligned with the goals of the Rational View podcast. I've interviewed them both to get their perspectives on how to tackle the pandemic of disinformation being spread on social media. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a co-founder of the Mental Immunity Project with Andy and Lee? Uh, Yeah, so um, I'll try and keep it short, but as an educator, so my background is biology. Um, I have a biology and uh, my graduate work was in actually plant ecology. I studied fires on the Great Plains. And when I started uh, teaching at a community college, um, you know, our our mission is mostly education, right? So for Mm -hmm. uh, community college. And I was, um, I was specializing in the courses for non-majors, like the People who didn't want to be scientists when they grow up, they still have to take science classes. And oftentimes that class is biology. I'm a biologist. I love biology. And I remember one semester, I was teaching students about uh, the cell cycle and cellular reproduction and how that relates to cancer. 
because in the process of teaching the class, I taught it for like 10 years. Um, I thought, well, how can I teach this in a way that's interesting to students? So in this case, it was an issue that was related to the content. So mm-hmm. I remember looking at it, my students though, and they had this like, I can only call it deer in the headlight looks. It was just <laughs> like, what, what, what the hell is this? Oh my God. I, I don't understand this. I'm not going to remember this. Mm-hmm. And then I realized a lot of the students who aren't science majors, they come into science classes, science phobic. They're there because they have to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was not helping. And actually what they were going to do was try and remember everything I was teaching them, regurgitate it on an exam, and then forget it. Yes. And I actually really worry about those students. To, to this day, like I think if they're if they're diagnosed with cancer, somebody in their family, is what I taught them helpful? Mm. Was it something, would they even remember it? Was mm-hmm. that really what they needed to know? And so I went to the department and I said, look, I, I think we need to talk about the classes that we teach. Do they teach science literacy, right? And what does that look like? Actually, fun fact, critical thinking is one of those um like if you ask people, educators in particular, if they teach critical thinking, they're going to say yes. I, I mm-hmm. would have said yes. And then if you ask them to define critical thinking, you're going to get a different answer for every single person, probably. Interesting. And so um, I went into this deep dive into um, what I actually thought students should know. If I had a single semester to teach the average person what they needed to know about science and better thinking, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. So I created a course in its place. I call it Science for Life. I started a website, Thinking is Power. The idea is that knowledge is great, right? Knowledge is power. But we carry access to all the world's information in our pockets. Yeah. The better question is, can you find information when you need it? Can you find reliable information and use yes, it to make yes. better decisions? And so I met, um, I, I, I just have curriculum that's very aligned with uh, the Mental Immunity Project, turns out. And so Andy Norman and I found each other online, and I'm now their education director. Oh, very good. Very good. So, I mean, I, I, I love the way you, you found the problem and tackled it. I mean, many people, I think, and I agree, many people not familiar with science expect it to be uh, a, a similar dogmatic process to religion, I think, whereby there's a set of unquestionable facts that one must learn and it seems daunting because there's so many facts that people learn through science. But, you know, we understand that science is just a process. It's a living process and all facts are up for discussion. And that, that's foreign to a lot of people, I think. So, um, you know, great on you for identifying that. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's not taught enough, I think, to at the entry level and especially to people who aren't science majors who have a lot of questions and may be coming from a different tribe that are, even anti-science in some cases. How, how has your experience been? Uh, so you you got you got a, a class that you teach now to that's not just biology; it's critical thinking. Is that is that exactly how it, that came about? Yeah. So the course is teach uh, uh, science for life, and the idea is skills, not facts. And those skills are critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy. And importantly, they're in that order. And if you'd like, we can come back to that. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I wanted to address something that you just said because um, so the most common textbook used for non-majors biology in the United States. I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> it's the most used. It's very expensive. It's about 800 pages long for a semester. Mm-hmm. And the first chapter has about four pages devoted to what they call the scientific method. And then the rest of the, the book is mostly things to memorize. And what I found is that teaching 
science that way gives the wrong impression about what science is. Mm. Now, certainly there are things that we have found through the process of science that are interesting. Carl Sagan, though, famously said, if we teach people only the findings of science without how we, I'm paraphrasing now, without the process, then how can anybody tell the difference between science and pseudoscience? He's right. If I'm scrolling through social media and I see different facts, how am I to know which process is reliable and which isn't? So the process is more important than the findings, in my estimation. And now Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time communicating science online. And when I, um, especially when I talk about concepts like um, the different types of knowledge in science, like a theory versus a law versus a consensus or a fact, um, I think this this is just my personal experience here. Um, I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think how we teach science this way has left a lot of people thinking that science results in proof. And when science has proven something, right, then I'll accept it. But any movement in that that looks like they're not certain, well, scientists are always changing their mind. And, oh, you can't trust them. They say this one day and then they say this something else. And, oh, well, those scientists are wrong because this other person who I agree with disagrees with them. And, right. And so it's mm-hmm. the certainty aspect. We teach findings of science like, like they're 100% certain, and they're never 100% certain. Yeah, I know. I get that. Um, when I was teaching physics or, or, you know, we did labs for physics, and the kid and the, the students were supposed to go and do experiments and, you know, derive the, the gravitational constant or something, or drive the acceleration due to gravity by dropping objects and timing them. And they would say, okay, I've got, you know, 9.7 meters per second square instead of 9.8 meters per second square. So this is the correct value. And this is my value. It's like, no, no, you have done a scientific experiment. You have measured gravity. You have a certain uncertainty in your measurement, but you are improving our knowledge of gravity by doing this experiment. You can't say that this is the correct value. This is the value that is accepted, um, you know, and Sure, some some numbers are very much more precise than others in science, but you are still making a a measurement, and maybe your tools are inaccurate. But if you, you know, if you properly express your uncertainties, then you are advancing science, and your answer is just as good as the other answer. And and this is something that took a lot of work to press into people's minds that you know you're doing science, you're you're, you're advancing things. Yeah. And I, those uh, recipe labs, I think leave the wrong impression because there is a right answer. And I've even had students say when they get to the end and they don't get the right answer, they'll say, well, I'll just change my data. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cause what I was supposed to get was this. So I'll just, right. And oh gosh. That's the worst thing you can do in science. Don't fake your data. <laughs> this is how you fail the lab. This is the only way you fail the lab. <laughs> but they think they're trying to get the right answer as opposed to doing the exploratory process of science. Yes, yes. So you've put together this website called Thinking is Power. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, who is it for? What is, what is it about? So I started that website when um, I put together the new course and I wanted resources for my students. And there wasn't a textbook that I wanted to have them buy. If I'm going to have them buy a textbook, I'm going to use it. And there wasn't. So I thought I'd start writing content and I put it on the website for readings for them. And then I thought, well, maybe people 
are just interested in this. And mm-hmm. I am pleasantly surprised to find that that is true. Uh, and now I have social media accounts. Uh, Facebook is the biggest one. Um, and what, um, what I found is um, there is an audience for this kind of science communication. I see a lot of um, other educational institutions using the website. The website is set up so that there is a foundations course in critical thinking and information literacy and science literacy. So it's intended to be read in order. It doesn't have to be. Um, I have set up my course so that it follows that um, that progression. Like I, I mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but how people get to the website is any number of things from different places. And then they get funneled into different aspects. And I mean, if that's how it works, that's how it works. But So how do you, how do you teach critical thinking in your course? What are the most important foundations that, that you can lay for your students and for people out there that are uncertain about who to believe? Uh, because obviously, you know, capabilities of, of the normal person to assess cutting edge science are not that good. And so how do they believe, you know, typically it falls into a tribalism thing. Like these are the people that my tribe trusts. I'm going to listen to them. These, how do you, how do you teach people to, to, to do a critical analysis of these sources that they have before them? Okay. So I love this question. You may have to stop me at some point. <laughs> go, go. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful what you ask. Um, so what I have learned about teaching science is that the most important first step is to understand why we need science. When I go into a class now and I start with the scientific method, scientific method, and that's that stupid recipe lab thing that like most science doesn't look like. And then it's really misleading because science doesn't follow that. Then oh, it wasn't really science. And But why do we need that process to begin with? So I start with critical thinking and then I go into information for the same reason. Um, Mm. Evaluating information requires us to understand our own thinking. So backing up, I I do a process of, um, I use misinformation in class and I use a lot of humor and I start with non-triggering misinformation. So for example, the very first day of class, I say, okay, I have a friend um, who is an astrologer and mm-hmm. um, she does personality readings. And she's actually pretty good. And I, I give this ruse, right, about how she's famous, but I'm not going to tell you who she is because I don't want you to look her up. But if you're interested <laughs> in doing this, she's, she knows I'm doing this class on critical thinking and skepticism. And so she's willing mm-hmm. to offer free personality assessments. So fill out this really brief questionnaire and then next time I'll give you your results. So next class, before we start lecture, so here's your results. Um, we're trying to test her effectiveness. So please don't let on what you think. When you're done reading it, we're going to rate how, her accuracy and then talk about it. And so um, Bertram Four originally did this in the 50s. And then um, uh, it got famous with James Randi, did it more. Um, but the basic idea is um, you have a need for others to like and admire you. And there have been times in the past where you've said something that you later regretted. And you have a great deal of unused potential. You're unsure about what kind of major you're going to... Okay. So all of these are statements <laughs> that apply to everybody, but we're like, whoa, that's so me. So we How know that. Know? Yeah, I know. How <laughs> they know. That's the uh, forward effect or the Barnum effect. So I have the mm-hmm. students read their their um, 
uh, personality assessments. And then um, I've done this for years. It's about 4.3 to 4.5 out of 5, her accuracy. Um, and that's in line with what uh, four found. Okay, mm -hmm. now get with the person next to you and talk about your readings and why you thought they were accurate. And sometimes it takes them like 10 minutes to realize they all have the same one. <laughs> okay. Beautiful, beautiful. So, okay, let's talk about why you fell for that, right? And we get to talk about confirmation bias, about motivated reasoning, about the Barnum effect, about priming, about appealing to authority. Beautiful. But the point is I fooled them to prove to them I could be fooled. Feynman famously said, um, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you were the easiest person to fool. Now, the problem yes. is if I could tell students I could fool you, you could be fooled. They're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, oh, no, 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 I can. Let me show you. <laughs> so, of course, I, there is risk at lying to students the very first day of class. But, you know, um, I have found that approaching it with humor and humility, I mean, everybody falls for it. And so um, mm -hmm. what happens is students start to um, have they start to adjust their confidence and their ability to assess claims. And then I start lecture with witches. So I'm just going to tell you a story and I don't want you to take notes. And when we're done, we're going to talk about okay. it. Okay. So I'll tell them um, about the witch trials in Europe and through like the, the 14th through 17th centuries and the kinds of things witches were accused mm -hmm. of and the kinds of evidence to support um, those claims. And the evidence largely came from being accused or confessing. Okay. Now, why would you confess? Well, mm. let's talk about that. Here's what they did. And so I would go through torture things, right? And, and it's okay. like, it's terrible. Um, and you get to the end. It's like, okay, why would I tell you a story about witches? And so we have a nice conversation. And then the, the point is my students don't believe in witches, right? I've mm. almost never had a student who actually believes in this kind of witchcraft. So they can step back and evaluate someone else's thinking. Uh -huh. They were really confident. They were really confident that they were right. What was their evidence? How good was their evidence? Okay. And now, obviously, turn it into yourself. That's the goal here. So mm -hmm. then we get to start about where we get our beliefs from. We get them from people around us. We get them from our personal experiences. And they get into our brain, and then we just assume they're true. Mm -hmm. And then... We use confirmation bias to reinforce it. And then we get really confident and so on. So anyway, we talk about where our beliefs come from. And then I go into the limits of our perception and memory. Oh, that's good. Students think, like if I if somebody says, I believe in ghosts. Oh, why do you believe in ghosts? Well, I saw one. I believe in UFOs because I saw one. I believe in homeopathy because I tried it and it worked. Right? Any number of those. People believe in these kinds of things because of their personal experiences. If yeah. I don't break down why you can be fooled like eyewitness testimony and we talk about ghosts and we talk about ufos nice. okay let's evaluate the, which one is more likely that aliens have come from the far reaches of the universe to fly through the sky and the only evidence we really have is blurry images or that somebody is their perception is fooling them mm. right? we can all be fooled remember right so and then i go into um biases uh, and the the kinds of um heuristics and biases that lead us astray tribalism emotions etc yes, yes um yes. and then logical fallacies and understanding arguments on, and on the uf on the ufo thing let, let me just add yeah. on, on the ufo thing uh, a, a great comeback that i i always have in, in that one is that like why don't astronomers ever report ufos 
They're the ones that are looking at the sky all the time. Even amateur astronomers don't report UFOs because they know what they're seeing. Mm. It's a very interesting thing, right? Hmm. They should be seeing them, shouldn't they? (laughs) They should, right. But they'll say, well, a pilot saw one and pilots are yeah. trained and pilots should like you know what the sky is a really big place so um i show them examples of of ufos that have been solved mm-hmm. if there's a great one in um it was in denver and some guy okay. was reporting on his home camera he had a home security camera that was capturing um a ufo flying over downtown denver like every day in the middle of the afternoon and so he sent it to the local news and they put it on the news and everybody was looking for ufos that nobody captured except for this guy in his home security camera and it turns out they were insects crawling on the, on the lens because it's the middle of the day that's when it's warm and the insects mm-hmm. were flying right over the camera and it looked like ufos we can be fooled by video <laughs> Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, well, it's it's actually quite scary the way that artificial intelligence and deep yeah. fakes are going as well. Like people are going to be generating information, video information to fool us. So I'm very afraid of the impacts of that on on an insufficiently skeptical public. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I agree with you. Um, but we're not even skeptical enough that we see even without AI. And so, yeah. yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this website, uh, thinking is power sounds great. Um, I'm looking forward to, to perusing it and, and, and maybe taking stuff from it. <laughs> Please do. Um, so where in your, you know, in your estimation, do most people fail in critically appraising, say, um, disinformation, say a social media meme or idea. What's the, what's the most common failure of critical thinking? Um, so this is a really good question. Um, and what I think, and the reason I've designed the course the way that I, I have, it's we are not aware of our own thinking and how we can be fooled. And so um, the biggest reasons we fall for misinformation are when it's repeated. So if you're in an echo chamber that's repeating false information, mm-hmm. the brain assumes ease of processing with truth, um, with emotions. So if it's really triggering, um, that's why we fall for satire, actually, um, is because it makes us laugh and it confirms our biases. So if something mm-hmm. fits with how you think the world works, mm-hmm. then why would you check? Okay. Um a lot of the focus now on um, addressing various types of mis- and disinformation focus on the actual issue. So there are wonderful science organizations that are focusing on evolution misinformation. Mm-hmm. I should call that disinformation. Um, climate change disinformation, vaccine disinformation. And the problem with all of those is they don't address why we fall for them in the first place. It takes two to tango, right? Like I can only be fooled if I let somebody fool me. And no one can fool me like I can. So we have to realize our own susceptibility, our own flaws in reasoning, the emotions and biases that might lead us to fall for something. Learn to not be um, so confident. Like this, this idea of knowledge is black and white, true or false, proven or not. Instead, right, right. I teach students to proportion their confidence in, in a belief, right? Put it on a scale, zero to 100, avoid the extremes, and then allow yourself to move. Um, so 
it's really the, in my um, experience, we fall for this because of us. And I think that is where empowerment actually lies, teaching people to protect themselves mm-hmm. from disinformation. Are people interested in doing that? It's a challenging process to, cha- you know, to challenge your personal beliefs and your belonging to a group that your, you know, your perhaps openness to disinformation allows you to be one of the flock, so to speak. And there are tribes that, you know, might look askance at someone who questions their core beliefs. And if, you know, belonging to a group is important, as you said in your, in your, uh, your personality test. We all want to feel like we belong. Well, that's true, right? Uh, if, if you start questioning core beliefs of your group, suddenly you have to have the, the fortitude to stand up and potentially get ostracized. How many people really want to do that? I, I think that may be the problem. <sighs> okay. So um, it, it's not enough to know how to think critically. You have to want to do it. Yeah. So that motivation, um, I have woven it throughout my course with a what's the harm question. Like, what's the harm from being misled? Mm-hmm. So with the personality assessments, the harm might have been 50 bucks, right? Okay. Um, with the harm for homeopathy, it might be um, not treating something that actually needs to be treated and mm-hmm. potentially even death. And there are documented cases of that. Yeah. So it's a spectrum, right? Um, but it is important to instill, while we're teaching critical thinking, to instill the motivation for wanting to do it. It's hard work, and we do risk being ostracized. If you if you um, are interested, I have a really interesting story that I use with my students that's mm-hmm. helpful in this. Please. Okay. So um, are you familiar with Leon Festinger? No. So in um, the 1950s, there is a woman outside of Chicago who was a psychic, and she um, received messages via automatic handwriting. And one day, uh, she woke up in the morning and started writing a message, and it was from somebody who went by the name of Sananda on the planet Clarion. Now, Sananda was Jesus. So Jesus was on the planet Clarion and the other um, guardians, they called themselves, wanted her to gather seekers. So they did. And this is a really great expanded story. But the short version is she she eventually got a, um, a prophecy that the world was going to be destroyed by a global flood on December, I think it was 21st of that year. And so the mm-hmm. Um, doomsday cult says the world's going to end, made it in the paper. And Leon Festinger, who's one of the most important 20th century psychologists, was looking at this going, huh, I wonder what will happen on December 22nd when the world didn't end. So he and a team of his psychologists infiltrated the group to watch what would happen. And he's posted a great book called When Prophecy Fails. So, um, there's all these false starts where they um, the aliens are coming, but they don't come. At one point, they get pranked by a radio station. Um, um, and the followers lost, basically, they gave up everything. Like there was a professor at a local college. Uh, he essentially got fired. Um, people gave away all their money. They lost custody of their kids. Why would they need those things? The world was going to end, right? So as it progresses, people mocked them more and more. And the only people they had to rely on were each other. And mm-hmm. when the date finally came, they were just, 
he describes the scene and it, it, I can only imagine because the world was going to end. They were finally going to be vindicated and shown to everyone that they were right the whole time. And obviously the world doesn't end. The world doesn't end. The world doesn't end. And it's this like, oh, well, we should take a coffee break. Oh, the clock is wrong. Oh, um, I'm getting a message. We should wait a bit. And then finally at like 4.30 in the morning the next day, she gets a message. The world was not going to be destroyed in a global flood because their belief had saved the world. Oh, wonderful. Wow. This is where we hit. (laughs) Not only were they right, they were so right, they saved the whole planet and all the people. (laughs) Oh, that's good. This is where we get motivated reasoning and cognitive dissonance from, is this study with Leon Fessinger. The point here is that um, they fooled themselves because it was too hard to admit that they were wrong, that they could be wrong. And when they finally, it's the series of justifications that we make to ourselves to continue to believe something that is attached to our identity somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, th- again, this is a non-triggering story, right? My students aren't parts of these cults. I can tell this story. They can look at their beliefs and how they um, rationalized. Um, and then they can, you know, step back. It, it does not take very long before a student starts to talk about QAnon or before they start to associate it with things that we see today. Mm-hmm. And again, that's the point. The aliens aren't coming for people. So the question is, when the aliens don't come to save you, are you going to change your mind? Um, but it requires, again, us being honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's definitely lacking in a lot of cases. Um, so I, I like your discussion about motivation, right? talk about the costs of of this and and in various different scenarios what are the costs and you know this is you know foundational to my podcast it's like the cost of irrational public policy is is what i'm you know trying to mitigate because you know we we have enough costs without doing things wrong and paying for hocus pocus that's not going to help us and uh, you know i I feel like society has has kind of stepped away from the scientific method a little bit. I think there's been a lot of suspicion about science. It's been associated with, you know, big pharma in the biological circles. And it's, you know, there have been large corporations and large organizations which have done bad things that have reflected on science. How do we decouple that in in people's minds is you know science is not the enemy here how do we address this this feeling that science isn't to be trusted that scientists are the elites and they're lying to us um if i had a really good answer to that i could probably save the world and i'm trying um the best let me go back to the, the doomsday cult for a second, um, because part of why they held on to those beliefs is because they were mocked, right? Mm-hmm. All of us can be wrong. There is absolutely zero chance that all of us are right about everything that we believe in. So the question is, what are we wrong about? And we need other people to help us see that. But changing our minds requires feeling safe enough and confident enough to do that and humble enough. So we want to be able to be wrong and to change our minds, but we need to allow others the space to do so as well. 
mm-hmm. right? And not like there's a lot of mocking in these conversations. And I'm a firm believer that mocking is not going like calling someone stupid is not going to change their mind. Like, you know what? You're right. You know, that was dumb for me to believe that. <laughs> um, but the mm-hmm. trust issue is important here because a lot of disinformation purposefully sows distrust in reliable sources of information. Yes. Right. It is yes. part of the fabric of what it is they're doing. The only way, the best way to cut people off from good sources of information is to tell them they're conspiring against you. They're lying. They're out for money or power. And honestly, that is the only way to actually explain why the vast majority of the world's experts in a particular field disagree with a position is a conspiracy. Now, mm. conspiracy theories are fun too. And we, we can talk about conspiracy theories because they start to unravel the moment you really think about them. But you have to really start to think about them. But the question is, to get students back to, to um, how they come to their beliefs, none of us are experts in everything. Like mm. I know what I know in a very small area. Um, the more we know, the more we tend to realize that we don't know. So there's a lot I realize I don't know. There's probably even more I don't know that I sure. don't know I know it all, right? So one of the most important aspects of knowledge is knowing where it lives, being able to find it. And so Mm -hmm. um, the process of producing knowledge in different fields is the trustworthy part. We don't want to trust a person. I don't want you to trust me. Like that's not what this is about. Yes. Process. And so um, understanding how the process works and then understanding how people who want to manipulate you are using your biases against you to try and fool you. Mm -hmm. And actually, I have found that to be really powerful. Nobody likes Mm -hmm. to be manipulated. Nobody likes to be manipulated. The problem is, can I quote Carl Sagan again? I love it. Love Carl Sagan. Um, Carl Sagan said something to the effect of, um, once we've been bamboozled, it's too painful to admit it. Once you give your power over to a charlatan, you almost never get it back Hmm. because it's too painful to admit to everybody, even to our, especially to ourselves. You know what? I was fooled, but that's where we need to allow people to have the safe space to do that. Um, so it's, it's a lot of, um, understanding our our own thinking and being kind to ourselves and to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, social media has amplified a lot of our worst trends, our worst traits, I should say. And the distance that social media affords us in our communications and our discussions um, seems to allow people to ridicule rather than engage with empathy. I think that's one of the major issues that are causing the sort of sniping and polarization that we see today is that people feel okay to flame strangers that they'll never meet, that they only talk to through this computer. Um, and that's, you know, it's so easy to, to ridicule positions that you don't agree with, especially if, you know, you, you have some knowledge that they're ridiculous. Um, it makes it much harder for us to bring people together to correct them or to help them to show them perhaps the error of their ways. So we need to, on all sides of this this issue, of any issue, is to get rid of the mocking. I agree that's 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 a huge and important step. And you, if you're going to change anyone's mind, you have to meet them where they are first and, and not, you know, half the people in the world aren't stupid. They've been fooled. They've been fooled. 
so i mean the work you're doing is is excellent um and you know it's it's necessary what what are you working on now how are you uh, moving forward with with your work in this area um well i'm writing a book um and it is a roller coaster ride of emotions <laughs> so on. um i am doing a lot more um I've expanded into YouTube. Um, nice. I just have to, the algorithm thing, the, the social media thing that you mentioned is really interesting. I, I have been very fortunate to create a community on various social media platforms, Facebook in particular, that um, is a really um, rewarding place. And I, I have those rules of engagement. I model them. I enforce them. But the problem is that the algorithm um the algorithm likes engagement and engagement tends to happen more when we're emotionally triggered and yes. when we're fighting with each other. So um, I'm hampered by that. Also by the fact that uh, Facebook's hmm. algorithms can't seem to tell the difference between debunking misinformation and actually sharing misinformation. And so every time I try and actually address a form of misinformation, not every time, but a lot of the times I get put in jail. And so I sometimes just self-censure. Hmm. The algorithms are a major problem. But that said, I have found that there is a space where people are interested in doing this. And importantly, okay. like um, when I respond to somebody on, on social media, it's not that I'm necessarily trying to change their mind, um, but there's a lot of people watching the conversation. And yes. so it's not just what is said, but it's how it's said. It's showing how we can disagree in um, a respectful way in a curious way um having boundaries for behavior of course but i've also found that the more vitriol I, it is so easy to mock sometimes oh, and God. i <laughs> have to, <laughs> it's funny i my filter is better in the morning and it wears down over the course of the day and so by the time it's in the evening and i see a comment on facebook i'm like ready to go and then i'll I'll have the at least awareness to look at my husband and go, should I, should I post this? And he'll go, well, why don't you wait till the morning and see what happens? And usually I decide not to do yeah. it because yeah. um, it wouldn't have been productive and it would have reflected mm -hmm. badly on me. I have never, I have never regretted being kind, even if somebody didn't give me kindness back. Yes. And I think the it's more- It's very difficult though. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You. you it, it, when someone comes at you with a with a wrong belief, very with a lot of vitriol, and you know, how are you so stupid to believe this? It's so hard to just step back and say, "Why do you believe this?" <laughs> Rather than just coming back with a witty rejoinder. Uh, the other so, yeah. thing that Good I think you. is important here for us as like science educators and communicators is that. Um, so I, I joke that my audience is the normals, like on a bell curve, they're in the middle. People mm -hmm. over here don't need me. And people over here, I'm I'm probably not going to reach with my time, skill set, energy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But they're the ones that we tend to see the most. Yeah. But there's a huge group in the middle that are reachable. They are swayable. They mm -hmm aren't in the weeds. They don't know all of these um, like uh, arguments and, and they're not the extremists. So it, it, that's another hard thing to do, but I think it's important to focus on those movable middle that mm -hmm. then makes those extremists irrelevant. Yeah. 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 I think 
you're right in that the ones that are the loudest and the ones that are posting are not the majority. And, you know, if you're, if you're involved in social media and your personality, you're hearing the vocal people. But yeah, what's the ratio of, of quiet listeners to vocal extremists, you know, and it's probably, you know, 10 to one in terms of the, the middle, just, you know, it's a, it's a bell curve, right? This is, <laughs> you understand that the, these people are out there. And this is, this is exactly why I engage in a lot of cases without hope of changing someone's mind. And when, when I do get someone to change their mind online, it's very rewarding uh, because it happens so rarely. <laughs> And so that's when you like applaud and put out a, this is an amazing that happens and, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, make a, um, make a, I don't want to say show of, but definitely reward people, um, for being able to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I do, um, you may or or may not want to talk about this, but, um, um, Early in the semester, I teach, show my students, I, I give them an epistemology exercise to have on how to think through things. Mm-hmm. And then um, it's also useful for having conversations with people. So the exercise goes like this. Um, you start with, um, how sure are you that you think your belief is true? The example I tend to use is, um, how many species of elephant are there? Okay. I, I'm curious. Non-triggering. It's non-triggering. Thank you. Um, how many do you think there are? Um, so I know of, you know, African and Asian elephants. Um, so I know of two. So I think there's two, but and how I'm not very confident that I, I could be certainly wrong there, but there might be three. Can you put uh, on zero to a hundred? Can you put a number on it? Maybe four. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> Fair. So you're not confident. How would you feel if you were wrong? Um, I would be curious to learn. I would be happy to learn that I was wrong. Okay. Just pause for a minute and imagine that feeling for anything else. Like for Mm -hmm. vaccines or GMOs or climate change or like that feeling is what we're leaning into the desire more to the not being emotionally attached to the belief, but being happier that you learn something. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly my whole mindset. I I try to model that. I know I'm not successful all the time because everyone has motivated thinking. Um, but yeah, this is this is what I, I strive to do. And I think this is a great uh, example uh, if you can get people to do that. So if I was trying to change your mind, though, like if we were having a conversation maybe about something mm-hmm. that we might have a disagreement on, um, that confidence level, I might ask you instead of, um, this is important, instead of asking you why you think you're right. So that would be for you to tell me why you think there's two. Mm-hmm. I might ask you to tell me why you think you might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. So the shift there is you coming up with your own reasons for why you might be wrong. Mm. Right. Instead of me telling you why you might be wrong, you did it yourself. And that's way more powerful than it is if I were to tell you. By the way, there's three. Yes. Species of elephant. Oh. So there's the African was um, so they used to be African and Asian, 
Mm-hmm. And the African, uh, I think in the early aughts, was split into the forest and savanna elephants based on genetic evidence. By the way, notice there, that was a fact that changed. <laughs> <laughs> the scientists don't know anything. I know. They're always changing their mind. I don't know why that's a bad thing. To yeah. change your mind? Like, why is that a bad thing? <laughs> like, we should applaud that. That's exactly it. People expect certainty from their their prophets. Um, and and so that's why scientists are, are are the odd group out, I think, in in you know being happy to change their minds. So this has been a, a great discussion. I've really enjoyed hearing about your work and, and where you're going. What's 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 the book you're working on? Are you uh, willing to share? So um, the book is based on the inoculation theory, which is actually part of the Mental Immunity Project. Um, inoculation theory uh, originally was proposed by William McGuire in 1961. And um, the idea is like a vaccine will expose the body to a bit of a pathogen and then you build up antibodies to those. Mm-hmm. So um, you can do something similar with the mind and misinformation. So if you expose the mind to a bit of misinformation, along with techniques to resist the persuasion, then in the real world, you can be inoculated against it. So mm-hmm. um, I use what's called active and technique-based inoculation. And um, I have my students create misinformation using the techniques of that particular type of misinformation. And so um, Hmm. um, I have examples that I use in class. Some of them are on my website, um, but that's the book that I'm writing about. Very interesting. Well, looking forward to to seeing that come out. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I love to hear what you're doing. Um, Hopefully we can chat again in the future when when your book comes out maybe and and learn more about it for for spending your time i'd be happy to send you a rational view t-shirt uh and hopefully uh, we can connect in the future thank you so much thank you so much it was a great conversation if you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions please come find us on facebook at the rational view and join our discussion group if you like what you're hearing please consider visiting my patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.